Hey, I'm Brett, and this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And buffalo wings, hopefully. Everything in your life is about buffalo wings. Oh, buffalo wings is the king of the appetizer. Brett's favorite food. Ah, buffalo wings are so good. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, everyone. Brett, do you get your buffalo wings ever delivered? I don't. Buffalo wings don't travel well, in my opinion. When they go in a box or a container of some sort, they tend to get soggy and lose that crispiness on the outside. And that's just a key element of a buffalo wing. That actually speaks to the topic of our show today. Steph, do you get food delivery a lot? I do. And we just got it today here at the office. We got DoorDash delivery. And Mm -hmm. it was so frustrating because originally it said 30 minutes. That turned into an hour and a half. You are speaking to my biggest pain point for food delivery. Now, we are very loyal DoorDash customers. We get food delivery, especially from them, all the time. But my biggest pain point is the times when the actual delivery time ends up being so much more than the expected one when you hit the button and everyone's getting hangry and it's the worst, isn't it? Exactly. There were some unhappy people here. We've talked about this in the past on this podcast, but we are a hangry group here. I know the three of us are a hangry group. (laughs) Yes. Well, that brings us to the question of this show. Can robots improve food delivery? Our guest today thinks so. Amoga Srirangaranjan is the founder of Carbon Origin. We'll hear how launching rockets and living in the desert helped him reach that conclusion. You guys know him really well. You're investors in Amoga. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has a big vision for what he's doing. He is quite possibly the biggest believer in robotics of anybody I've ever met in my entire life and the role that they're going to play in the future of the planet and the world. So really interesting guy. And what's so fascinating about Amoga is his ability to, I mean, he is individually just a genius, but he also surrounds himself with unbelievably intelligent and talented people. I think that he believes he's living in a sci-fi movie himself, right? It's it's just so funny. I think you are correct. Wait till you hear the lightning round on this one. That was a fun lightning round. Well, before we get to him, though, let's take a look at some hot topics trending in food and innovation. Axios is reporting that synthetic biology companies are making it easier for customers to access its services. One example is Ginkgo Bioworks, which has launched a cell development kit service, or CDK. The company tells the outlet that these kits would help customers like Motif Foodworks. That's a Boston-based startup that makes ingredients for plant-based meat and dairy. Motif could use a CDK to have Ginkgo make the microbes they need more quickly, and that way the company can focus on product development rather than, in their words, hiring a bunch of biologists to create DNA by hand. Brett, how burdensome is it to create the microbes that underpin some of these alternative food ingredients? And could this mean that a barrier to competition is lifted and we could start seeing even more food ingredient companies emerge? So I'm going to make take this on a weird tangent here with an analogy that might be a little bit easier to understand because this is confusing to me, right? And the science behind alternative proteins go over my head all the time. But if you think about e-commerce, something that most of our listeners and we've all used and experienced, and but starting an e-commerce shop when, you know, I actually built a startup in this world and you had to build everything from scratch and you had to figure out how to do payments and how to sell stuff and how to market stuff was a real challenge. And as the e-commerce market matured, you started having things like Shopify, 
which if you wanted to sell something, you could log on and start selling pretty much immediately. You had PayPal, which helped you do transactions. You had all of these little elements that were developed around an industry that was exploding to help make it easier for everybody to do these things. And and that's the way I would frame this, right? It is you know, a part of our investment thesis is actually the picks and shovels for the alternative space. So we're not necessarily as interested in investing in the next big brand, but we're a firm believer that there are going to be lots of great startups built around this space and servicing the companies that are trying to build the next great alternative protein brand. And that could be in this world where you're helping at the cell early stage cell creation phase. It could also be the mediums, the growth medium that you grow it in. It could also be the scaffolding that you use to help create a better mouthfeel or texture. We think that there's going to be a variety of great startups built in or around the space and, and it will accelerate the growth of the industry as a whole. So in general, I think it's a really good thing. Now, there's going to be some winners and losers in the picks and shovel space in general. But it seems like the answer is yes, in terms of because it's getting rid of some of the friction, it's also getting rid of a barrier to competition where we might see more companies emerge because it's easier than for them. We'll see more companies emerge, but we'll also see them focus on different things, where in the past they may have had to focus on, as Geeko Bioworks says, focus on creating DNA by hand. Now they're completely focused on, Brett's favorite word, mouthfeel, or other aspects of the product, or getting to market their supply chain, et cetera. So yeah, it'll help people get to market faster, right? It removes a step. And the bet on the Ginkgo Bioworks side is that there's going to be enough companies that are trying to build alternative proteins that will use this platform where it's a really valuable asset that they have in their portfolio of things to sell. Yeah, and I can see that accelerating their business as well. Well, coming up next, New York City has launched its first ever food transition team. Mayor Eric Adams has put together a transition team to handle food policy issues for his administration. And that team includes celebrity chef Tom Colicchio. The transition team will handle issues like helping families in need, urban agriculture, and overhauling school meal menus to focus on children's improved health and school performance. Guys, Eric Adams has made food policy central to his leadership as Brooklyn Borough President and also talked about it a great deal on the mayoral campaign trail. He himself is a vegan, and New York often sends trends for the rest of the nation when it comes to policymaking. Can you see this having a ripple effect I can. I think there are two things at play here. First is just general what politicians say to get elected. And <laughs> is that going to have an effect on Anything. people, right? Of talking about having a food team, will that get people elected? But more so, I think it becomes really interesting and spreads when we see outcomes of whether that's in food waste, in population health, in getting rid of food deserts. If we see outcomes that this task force is directly responsible for, then I definitely think we'll see it ripple throughout the U.S. And they're tying food policy to really important issues like economic development, poverty, accessibility to you know services and nutritious food, which really plays into health. Exactly. And it's eerily similar to how healthcare payers look at the world, right, of wanting to see these incredible outcomes for these different elements of our healthcare system. Now we want to see it for food. Brett, do you think that a lot of people, a lot of policymakers throughout the country are going to be watching New York City very closely as a laboratory of sorts? In general, I think politicians are watching anything pretty closely to see what will help them get you know elected the next round. So that's like my cynical side. But if it also is an additive and a benefit to society as a whole, I think it's really smart. And 
to what you two were talking about, right? Food is a, when you think about security and you think about what you need to live, like food is such an important part of that. And when people are worried about where their next good meal is coming from, it is potentially one of those levelers that might help, you know, make an impact in a lot of different disparities that we have in our country right now. And so, I, I mean, I look at our my kids' meals at their school, their public schools, and we think about that as an example of like, oh, should we be sending them with our own lunch, or is this healthy enough? So that's you know mm-hmm. hits home for us around like the quality and taste and enjoyment of the meal that my kids are eating every day at lunch. So it, it is super interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're staying in the Big Apple for this last one. DoorDash is piloting an instant grocery delivery program in New York City, which promises to get your deliveries to you in 15 minutes or less for a fee of $1.49. Now, we've been talking about this space quite a bit. There's so much competition there. Guys, do you believe the hype? Would you invest in a new startup in this space? Or do you think that a DoorDash or an Instacart or even an Amazon will eventually win? When we get a talk with Amoga today, it'll be interesting to hear his take on the last mile delivery. And we're an investor in what he's building. You know, I think that we're a firm believer in last mile delivery and the need from consumers to have food delivered directly to where they are. Now, how we get there is a a different question. And I think that I am a firm believer that it's going to be autonomous vehicles eventually. And that's the only way that the space itself will become economically viable in the long run. And so you're saying that eventually this kind of time and place where humans are doing that last mile delivery is going to be supplanted by technology, disrupted by technology very soon by robots. Yeah, definitely. I think within the next five years, for sure, well, it'll be almost robots be commonplace going down sidewalks in major metros. That's a perfect segue to our next segment where we'll talk to a former rocket scientist who's using robots to deliver food and looking to hire gamers to operate them. There was a time when the thought of robots delivering your food was the stuff of sci-fi movies. Not anymore. In the U.S. alone, the Associated Press reports hundreds of robots are crawling around college campuses, carrying staples like pizza to dorms. And with pandemic-driven labor shortages hurting the restaurant industry, some believe those college rovers will soon land on your doorstep. One of those believers is Amoga Srirangarajan. He's the founder of Carbon Origins, which develops robots to deliver food and hires human gamers to operate them. Meet Amoga, and you might wonder if he lives in a sci-fi movie with his chatter about robot consciousness and how we're all living in a simulation. Oh, and by the way, he also builds rockets. So it makes perfect sense that Amoga was born in a technology hub and his dreams really took flight when he witnessed a watershed moment in space exploration. So I grew up in Bangalore, India, and Bangalore is the Silicon Valley, essentially, of India. And I grew up building and fixing electronics. There's a road in Bangalore called SB Road, where you can find all sorts of electronics. I used to spend my summers there, fixing radios, televisions, building electronic kits, and that's where I found my true passion for electronics and eventually robotics. So you always had a passion for technology, even as a young kid. Yeah, I saw Sojourner land on Mars when I was five years old. It blew my mind. I didn't even know humans had been to the moon. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with robots. And when I was in high school, I saw Spirit and Opportunity land on Mars. 
And that's, I think, when I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, build robots that are cool, awesome, and eventually explore the universe with them. What brought you to the United States? I wanted to get hands-on experience in robotics, automation, and it's hard to find that in India. So I came to the United States for my undergrad, went to Case Western Reserve University, ended up starting my university's robotics team, and then later the rocket team, which today are the two largest student engineering organizations on campus and also where we find a lot of our interns. So the robotics team, I get you hear that at various colleges, but a rocket team? What do you guys do? Rockets are sexy, sexier than robots. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the real Um, reason. The rocket team was a way to meet girls. (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. That didn't happen. But, you know, I really wanted to combine my passions for space exploration and robotics. And that's the way I did it. Go after rockets through the rocket team. We got to implement some of the things that we were learning in class with some of the experimental rockets that we did. We launched from the Green River Utah Missile Range, and then later on, my very first startup, which was also called Carbon Origins, was focused on building flight computers for rockets. And when you were telling your parents what you were doing, it's cool, right, to be launching rockets, literally, but did they ask you how you planned on sort of monetizing that or anything? Yeah, my parents think I was crazy for going into startups. They wanted me to go into NASA or... Lockheed or Boeing and get a secure job. But I've been passionate about leading people, trying new things. And in many ways, the rocket team and the robotics team are like my first startups. You know, we had to go raise money for it. We had to inspire people to join it. And then we had to get into competitions and win. And that's continued since then. And eventually they saw that that's what Amoga does. And now they support it 100%. You literally were in the middle of the Mojave Desert launching rockets during a time period in your life. Yep, literally in the middle of the desert. You can find videos about this if you look us up. What kind of rockets were you launching? These were suborbital rockets that used uh, solid rocket fuel. How does one acquire solid rocket fuel? I don't know, maybe we're not supposed to talk about that. It sounds like something like acquiring. So I was trying to figure out how to get beer in college. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not on Amazon, right? No. So there's a company and. Canada called Cesaroni, and they make rocket motors for all sorts of things from experimental rockets to missiles. And they had surplus rocket motors. We got the right certifications, grow up there, pick them up. Here, a standard surplus rocket motor store. Yeah, surplus rocket motor store, exactly. <laughs> we got it at a steal, though. Like, it was really inexpensive. Don't worry, guys, I got this one. This is a great deal on this rocket. <laughs> Were you a hobbyist at this point, or were you looking at it as a business? At this point, I had acquired my level two certification, and I was working on my level three National Rocketry Association certification. You know, that's essentially high power amateur rocketry club in the United States. The business part was building flight computers for these rockets. So it's one thing to launch the rockets, but The difference between science and hobby is you collect data and you analyze data and you make decisions on that data. And that's where the flight computers came in and people wanted to buy those flight computers from us and use it for all sorts of other applications. And that's how the first business got started. How did you pivot from rockets to robots? Well, I've been obsessed with robots all my life. Actually, we pivoted from rockets to consulting for deep tech sort of companies. 
And when the pandemic hit, I saw an opportunity to get back into the robotic space. Pre-pandemic, I was working on an autonomous electric scooter, also called Skippy, which is now the name of our flagship robot. And then the pandemic hit and then nobody wanted to use electric scooters. But I was ordering a lot of takeout and groceries, decided to put that on Skippy, the electric scooter, and then that evolved into what we know and love today. What's so cool is that when I look at video of your company, the people operating the robots look like they're gamers. They are gamers. Yeah. So what was, was that a critical part of why you're different? Yeah, I think so. Um, we have developed the world's first reverse video game where you are in the video game controlling avatars, in this case robots, in the real world. And we are upscaling human labor in many ways. You know, our skipsters, who you know are our drivers, are from all around the world, from all walks of life. Some are in Egypt, some are in India, and some of them are here, right here in the USA. And some of them have disabilities that prevent them from getting normal jobs. Like our very first skipster was a pizza driver, and he got into a car accident and shattered his right leg. Now he's confined to a wheelchair, and he can't find normal jobs that you know the society has available. But he loves driving robots through Origins, which is our VR app. And it's a gamified platform. So better you are at training Skippy how to navigate the human world, the more money you make. Can you dig into that a little bit more? What's the connection between Skippy and your VR world? Like, what is the connection there? How does that work? And, and get into the tech a little bit with us of like, why is a really cool technology? Yeah, so there's three ways you can program a robot, navigate the human world. One, you just brute force it. Uh, you program it from the ground up, tell it what to do, step-by-step -step instruction. If you find this obstacle, do this and so on. The second one is a classical simulation-based training where you create complex simulations of the world and you put virtual robots in those simulations and you let it run crazy rampant in those simulations and, and you start adding variables and train the robot that way. And the end result of that is a model, like a self-driving model that you can then deploy to your robot, that, which then uses that model to navigate in the real world. The third way, the one that we're pioneering at Carbon Origins is real-time training of the robot with high context, high quality human input. So humans make decisions in a very different way than robots do. So when you're walking down the street, you're looking very quickly at different things on the street and making decisions, real-time decisions on how to proceed further. We're capturing all of that with our VR headsets. We're tracking your eye, we're tracking your head, we're tracking your controllers. And because you're not in the robot, being in VR, we can put you in an immersive world where we can take all the cameras from the robot, put it around you, or the videos from all the cameras from the robot, put it around you so you see what the robot sees you hear what the robot hears, and soon you'll be able to feel through the controllers what the robot is feeling, giving you full immersion uh, into the robot. And from the other side, from the, as a feedback loop, what you're seeing and what you're tracking influences the neural networks and promotes and demotes different layers of the neural network on how to navigate in the human world. So we use deep reinforcement learning based on the human input on training the neural networks and creating the ultimate model to navigate in the human world. So the gamers really become one with the robots. Yeah, Skippy's consciousness is an extension of our Skipster's collective consciousness in many ways. Brett and Steph, do you hear that? We're actually talking about a robot's consciousness here. I have a feeling we can go deep on the consciousness of robots with Amoga. That is a, probably a truth. 
Amaga, I have a, a question about this. Why do you care so passionately about enabling that robot consciousness? So our name, name of our company, Carbon Origins, means that you know we're all carbon-based life form, and for our intelligence as we know it, originated through carbon-based life form. And the true purpose of life, in my opinion, is to spread intelligence throughout the galaxy. And we're not going to do that as carbon-based life form, but we can do that as robots and extending our consciousness into our robots, which is why our ultimate mission is to make robots commonplace. That unlocks a world where 100% of humanity can focus on whatever we want while the robots take care of the rest and, in the process, explore the universe. Are your robots faster at food delivery than humans are? They're moving at human walking speed. What they are better at than humans is they're more consistent, uh, they're more efficient, they're more predictable. And people love dealing with a robot than a different driver every single time. Does anybody mess with the robots while they're out on delivery? Like, what's that reaction like? You know, you're just cruising down the street or cruising on the Skyway up here in Minnesota. Like, does anybody, like, mess around with them or try and break them or is there security around the bots? <laughs> so we have had a few instances where people, like, jump in front of the robot and try to, like, startle it or see if it'll stop. And immediately the robot goes, hello, friend. And then they're like, whoa, that thing talks. You're less likely to mess with the semi-sentient or sentient being than with a non-sentient machine. And that's something that we have realized during these deliveries and test deliveries, both in Minnesota and California, is like the moment the robot starts talking, they're treated fundamentally in a different way. And at these early stages, we do have a engineer that's like, incognito, just observing things um, for safety reasons, of course. Is your goal to have partnerships with the DoorDashes and Uber Eats of the world, or are you looking to be more end-to-end with your platform? Our goal is to integrate Skippy into the brands that need the service. Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, while convenient, aren't great for restaurants. They're not great for the bottom line. But we want to provide restaurants and grocery stores and any retailer, for that matter, is a efficient, low-cost delivery service that is predictable and reliable. Our ultimate goal is to integrate with the brands rather than the middleman. Some, if not all of the platforms that we mentioned, the Uber Eats and DoorDashes, they're coming up with their own robots. So how do you deal with that competition from the bigger players? Yeah, so we have a truly differentiated approach on solving urban autonomy. There are two big challenges in robotics today, uh, autonomous urban navigation and complex unstructured environments and human-robot interactions. And humans are really good at both. And we're using humans to train these robots in real time, which is fundamentally differentiated uh, from all our competitors. And we have other things in the works uh, that will further differentiate us in the future. Can you talk about how, like, how did you even do your first delivery? Like, how did you get those first orders on the Skippy And what the heck was the response of the person that opened the door and had food delivered by a robot? Yeah, one of my co-founders, Jamie, signed up on, I won't name names, but one of our competitors' apps as a delivery driver. And when we got the order to deliver, she put it on Skippy and we just drove the robot to the person's apartment and delivered it. And there's this one person we delivered who loved it so much that he kept ordering. And eventually we did it again. We delivered again. And he was out of the, you know, like he was super ecstatic, took selfies with the robot. He loved it. Uh, and that's when we knew like, okay, yes, this is what we want to do. So you were just like randomly sending, the people didn't know the robot was coming. They just, the robot shows up at the door and did they even know what to do? Yeah, so because we can talk through the robot. Jamie was able to talk through the robot. 
So even weirder, I open the door and all of a sudden there's a robot there. The robot starts talking to me. <laughs> Does the robot have a human voice or a robotic kind of voice? It depends. So right now we are automating a lot of the interactions and that does sound a little robotic, but in the beginning it was purely human voice. <laughs> that would be crazy. The types of jobs that the gamers do, it seems much more high level than a typical delivery driver. Are they getting paid the same as a regular driver or more or less? So the type of jobs they do is all gamified. Um, they're monitoring multiple robots at once, and they're different type of games. The first game that uh, we're working on is the navigation game, where they're literally putting breadcrumbs in front of the robot, and then the robot is following those breadcrumbs. And they can do that for multiple robots at once. And that's uh, one of the methodologies to train the robot. But we have other games in the works, like hazard detection game, hazard classification game, tagging objects game. It's like unlimited what we can do here. And we can apply this to all sorts of applications for training AI systems, customer support, sales. I mean, fill in the blank, really. They get paid better than uh, normal delivery drivers. So as a delivery driver, uh, you're making less than minimum wage. Uber Eats, for example, has 4% retention rate of their delivery drivers. So 96% of drivers leave the platform by the end of the year. And that's because they're getting paid min less than minimum wage. They have to pay for insurance. They have to pay for maintenance, uh, gas, all that. And they're using inefficient tools to do the job. You know, you don't need a car to deliver a half a pound takeout. You know, Skippy is far more efficient, and we complete the deliveries at a fraction of the cost of you know using a car and a traditional methodology. So we spend less money on the deliveries, and we can pay our drivers better. Brett, you're an investor in Carbon Origins. What got you to invest? Did you become a gamer for a day? No, when we first met Amoga, gosh, I don't even know how long ago it was now. I mean, in general, there's a real pain point around labor and delivery drivers and there's an obvious need for last mile delivery on this planet. And this is a really unique solution in the way they're going about training their AI is really cool. The way they're um, creating a new job class and a new way for people to learn and train for humans is really interesting to me. And then I'm always just got a killer big vision. I mean, honestly, like how he's going to take over the world, which is a question I always ask. Like, I love his big vision for the company. So, Amoga, how are you going to take over the world? What's your big vision for Carbon Origins in the future? Our big vision is in our mission statement, making robots commonplace. We want to see our robots literally everywhere, outside your home, inside your home, in farms, in space, and essentially unlocking the true human potential. We're really good at two things, problem solving and being creative. That's what we want humans to be able to do in whatever field and for whatever thing they're happy about and interested in while the robots take care of menial labor. Are we currently living in a simulation? 99.9% .9 yes. Aditi, what do you think about that? How do you feel about living in a simulation? The whole shared consciousness thing? I mean, I think I kind of believe in the shared consciousness thing. The simulation, my husband would say yes. For me, the jury's still out. I mean, the data supports it, right? One word answers a moga. Okay, cool. <laughs> data supports it. Humans will report to robots within our lifetime. True or false? We kind of already do. True. <laughs> What's harder to build, suborbital rockets or Skippy? Skippy. I think that's a surprising answer. That's upset. The favorite was uh, suborbital rockets on that one. The movie or TV show that best represents what the future will actually be like. Interstellar. That's all I got. 
Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. I'm here with Christoph, CEO and co-founder of Boston Meats. Christoph, what problem are you solving at Boston Meats? We are solving texture in alternative meats, essentially. So as you might know, today you have products like burgers, sausages, chicken nuggets. What you don't have are steaks, chicken breasts, pork chops. And the reason we don't have that is we don't have the technology to create the true muscle structure that you have in a piece of meat. And that's what we're solving essentially at Boston Meats. Got it. Yeah. It's like that mouthfeel when you bite into one of the these alternative protein things. It just doesn't quite feel the same as it has historically, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I think, and it really goes down to really what is the, the structure that is of these products. And essentially, you know, that will impart the texture, but the mouthfeel, how much water it's going to retain, how it's going to cook, and all of that is going to create the whole food experience that you would expect of a piece of meat and that's still lacking to some extent in alternative meats today. How are you solving it? We are essentially a food innovation company that's leveraging mechanical technologies, material science, food science to create these true structures. We've invented technologies that allow us to accurately replicate the muscle fiber structure that you have in a piece of meat. Muscle, like a lot of the tissues in our body even, are fibrous. And so it's really this ability to create this fiber that you have in a piece of muscle. And that's what we're recreating using plant ingredients essentially. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? Honestly, I think the straight answer is really creating better products for consumers. Right now, I think the industry has shown that there's a lot of excitement, you know, for burgers, chicken nuggets, but you know, that's a very small fraction of the overall meat market. The meat market is a trillion dollar industry that's growing year over year, and we need to be able to offer consumers products that they like, you know, that taste good, that have a good texture, that nutritionally are good, and that hopefully also have, you know, a better carbon footprint, you know, that are produced in a more ethical way. I'm with Lena, the CEO and co-founder of Konomics. Lena, what's the pain point that you're solving at Konomics? So about 77% of U.S. adults use dietary supplements and about 25% use functional beverages to manage their health and wellness. But oftentimes these consumers are very confused about the products that they are buying because they don't know if these products work, if they are efficacious, if they are safe. And the marketing in this industry is quite overwhelming and chaotic. There are a lot of unsubstantiated claims, a lot of prosecutions, litigations, recalls. It's like the wild, wild west. So really, oftentimes people just don't know what they're getting from these products. Well, how are you solving it? It sounds like a big problem to be solving. Yeah, it's a global problem. And what we have done is using genomics, bioinformatics, and AI technologies, we have built our product superiority platform, which powers our three different solutions, which are sort of end-to-end solutions that we provide to the companies within this industry. And using our solutions, companies can validate formulations, can test and certify the ingredients that are used in these products. And using our groundbreaking gene tune technology, we can even invent and innovate a new formulations targeting specific health conditions and uh, specific health outcomes. 
Got it. So if I'm looking for a food item that has some sort of specific benefit and it comes through your system, we'll know for sure that it actually has an effect, a positive effect on that thing that I'm trying to get work with is the long and the short of it. Exactly. So we will we test the ingredients, but we can also test the final formulation. And if you see our can trust economic seal of approval on it, then you can be assured that this is a good product. This is a quality product that we have tested. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? Yeah. So this is about a $500 billion global industry. And we are just scratching the surface right now. These ingredients come from all over the world. We collect a lot of data when we do the testing. Then we test the formulations. And again, we collect a lot of data. So our long-term plan is to really make use of that data in many different ways. One is for, again, create inventing new formulations, not only for as a one-size-fits-all, but also in the future for personalization. So what works for Brett may not work for Lena. So Lena and Brett need different products, different formulations. The second use case, long-term use case for this is from a sustainability point of view, right? We, like I said, these ingredients come from all around the world. What if we were able to grow green tea in a different part of the world that we have never grown before and still can test for its quality, right? So farmers all around the world can now start growing these plants and we can assure the quality of the end ingredient for it. And then the third use case is really matchmaking. Think about match.com for ingredients and suppliers. Every day we get asked the question, oh, do you know a good supplier or supplier will say, hey, we have these awesome ingredients. Can you test them and can you help us find the right buyers for them? And so as we're collecting all of this data, we are looking into deploying it or using it in many different ways. And that's how we grab the whole global market. So going back to the original question, when will robots take over food delivery? Brett, it seems like you think sooner than later. Well, I thought the original question is, do we want blue cheese or ranch with our buffalo chicken wings? And I'm a blue cheese proponent here. And if you two say ranch, I think we're, we might be, you know, splitting up this partnership. Sorry, I'm going to go blue cheese. Oh, I got one. Well, you know what? I'm probably neither. I just like them without the dressing. No dressing on your uh, buffalo wings. All right. But I like the buffalo wings wet themselves. So I don't like dry rub, but yeah, more wet. Maybe that wasn't the question that we started off with, but that was what was in my head this entire time we've been talking was, I wonder what you all liked, ranch or blue cheese? And blue cheese was my obvious answer. What about this last smile delivery problem in robots, guys? Yeah, it's coming. It's coming for sure. It is going to be driven by robotics. Again, the big challenge here is, it is a really difficult thing to make autonomous because there are so many different factors that a robot can encounter when trying to do last mile delivery. It's actually more difficult than driverless cars because driverless cars are on a grid with predictable things like stop signs and stoplights. You could be a robot on a sidewalk and there could be a dog in front of you and then the dog's gone. There could be a newspaper, like trash or whatever on the sidewalk. And you have to learn how to navigate those things. And that's why what Amoga is doing with the VR technology is so smart. Drones before robots or robots before drones? I think that the long term is the on-ground robots because the payload can be heavier. Both of them are going to have a lot to deal with from a government level of just laws and regulations and rules, but it's harder to have things flying through the air than having something driving on ground. And suburbs or cities first? Cities. Cities Cities are going to be hard, but I think the density will make it happen. That's why. It's just density. Steph, will you and I get less hangry with robots delivering our food, you think? I sure hope so. See you guys next week. See y'all.